Hello and welcome to Sports in the Waiting Room. I am your host, Chris Russo. This is episode 22, being recorded on Wednesday, April 7th, 2021. Should also be distributed on Wednesday, April 7th, 2021. A happy spring to you. Happy belated Easter and a blessed belated Passover. If you have celebrated either, blessed high holiday to any of you. And welcome to the program. A, an interesting week, particularly because of a fanta- two fantastic Final Fours. Uh, the first, of course, coming from the Women's National Championship game and Arizona falling to Stanford by one in a, in a stunning National Championship game. And second coming when Baylor topped Gonzaga by a score of 86-70. to 70. Let's start with the men's tournament, which ridiculously ended with a 9:20 tip-off on Monday night Eastern Time. Just wanted to point that out. That's just me. That's just me watching the game. That's just angry at that. A 9:20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time tip-off. The game was played in Indianapolis. If you do not realize, Indianapolis is in the Eastern Time Zone. So. You may think it's in the central time zone. It's in the eastern time zone. So these guys actually finished the game at something like 1130. Think think if there was a normal crowd. Think if there was a normal crowd and we were in a normal time that people could actually go, that that an entire capacity of, let's see, the, what's that, like 70,000, 80,000 people that could probably fit into Lucas Oil. Imagine that. Imagine if all of those people were there And, I mean, I know it's different when you leave a game in New York, but leaving from from, from the heart of the city, that was my phone, excuse me, I just, uh, I'm just messing with my phone off to the side, but imagine if 70, 75,000 people are coming out of that stadium at 11.30, 11.45, think about how ridiculous the traffic would be how annoying it is for the people watching, how late these guys are playing. The, the rest is absolutely insane. The people watching at home on the Eastern Time. Imagine if this was, imagine if this was like, uh, I don't know, let's, let's say, imagine if it was Syracuse and Florida in the national championship game. Or, or Sir, let's say, actually part, actually part of Florida is in the central time zone. So let's say it's Syracuse and Providence in the national championship game, just hypothetically. And they have to, you have their fan bases, they have to stay up that late. It's so annoying. And I know I'm saying this because I'm almost, because I have, I'm like a 75-year-old in the soul of a 22-year-old, in the soul of a 22-year-old, but I mean, it's too late. That's too late to watch a game. You should be grateful that I actually stayed up that late. Regardless. All right. So moving on, that was my, that was my beef. Let me move on now. Uh, The final four. Gonzaga defeated UCLA on that ridiculous overtime buzzer beater by Suggs, by Jalen Suggs, that put them in the national championship game to face Baylor. Baylor, who had destroyed Houston in the first game earlier that evening. And the coolest thing about this was, I think, the fact that, especially because the game was not that good, the national championship game was not that good. And it kind of concerns me. I brought this up actually. I kind of con- to a couple of friends. It kind of concerns me that so far this year, I mean, the women's national championship game was great, but what concerns me this year is the Super Bowl was hor- was a horrible game. I mean, the festivities were excellent, but the game itself was horrible. Um, 
not based on result, but just on, on how lopsided it was. And the same goes, same pretty much went for the national championship game in men's basketball. So the two really big events to start this new year, just, I mean, just look, I mean, you know, it's nothing really to complain about in the thick of everything else that's going on. But from a sports standpoint, oh, we've had, it's been, you know, we've had some bad, really lopsided games to watch in in championship rounds. Um, But Baylor, one of the cool things about this whole, about Gonzaga and Baylor being in the championship game was we were guaranteed a first-time national champion. Now, uh, I have said before, I, I don't know if I've said it on here, but I said it many times when I was working at WSOU that... Any NIT championship from 19 from uh, earlier than 1971 should be really considered a national championship. Really, that's what it is because the NIT was the equivalent, essentially the equivalent, and at times the superior to the NCAA tournament for a, a number of years. And 1970 was the last time that a team passed over or was allowed to pass over even uh, uh, the opportunity to play in the NCAA tournament in order to play in the NIT. Um, Al McGuire, the head coach of Marquette, decided that because his team, he didn't feel they got enough respect in terms of seeding in the NCAA tournament, decided to pass on it, and the team ended up winning the NIT. So, so like, for example, Seton Hall has never won an NCAA tournament in men's basketball. However, they won the NIT in 1953 when it was so huge. The only... The only tournament, the only team actually to win both in the same year is CCNY, City College of New York. I believe that was in 1950. So that's one of the most impressive feats in sports history. But uh, you know, so Seton Hall technically as a as a national championship, but Gonzaga and Baylor, for all they had done, believe it or not, they they never won an NCAA. Neither of them had anyone either. Neither of them had ever won an NCAA tournament in men's basketball. Neither of them had ever even won the NIT, or at least in a time when it really counted, prior to 1970 or 1971. Since 1971, the NCAA has not allowed any team to decline an invitation to the NCAA tournament. Uh, But it's unbelievable for how revered Gonzaga's program has been for the last 20 well, 10 at least, but honestly, including the time when John Stockton was there, 20, 30, 35 years, and the fact that they went to the national championship game in 2017 and came very close to knocking off UNC, they almost, I mean, they were they were the first team to go undefeated until the national championship game since Larry Bird and Indiana State in 1979. Now, it is so tough to go undefeated. That's the, that, that's the thing about that. But the point, okay, anyway, getting back to this, I'll get, I'll get to that in a second. But anyway, Gonzaga and Baylor, Gonzaga was established, Gonzaga's men's basketball program was established in 1907. That's 114 years ago. That's more than, that's two world wars and seven years ago. And the, the thing about that, that's old. Gonzaga had waited longer for a championship than the Cubs had, including if if the Cubs hadn't won in 16, they were still waiting. Baylor, meanwhile, had not won. They were established in in 1906, and their program was established in 1906. So these were two teams that had waited a combined 200 and... 
29 years. 229 years. And that's even more... And obviously it's different in college because there are so many more colleges and college athletic programs than there are professional programs in, in each league. But think, think about it this way. We talked about how the Cubs and, and Cleveland had waited so long. They had waited for... I'm just doing the math in my head. Cubs had waited for 108. Cleveland had waited for... 68, so they those two teams had waited for a combined 176 years. I believe that's right, 176 years. These two teams waited for 229 years. So this was truly, I mean, this was one of the things that was probably underrepresented in the whole media circus and the package of the national championship game, but that these two teams, have, these programs have waited for so long and it was unbelievable watching Jim Nance talk about, I had never seen that clip before, of Scott Drew saying when he was first introduced as the, as the Baylor head coach, I believe in 2003, uh, that we are not here to to get to the NCAA tournament. We are here to win the national championship. And it's absolutely true. It's one of the most remarkable turnarounds and rebuilds in the history of college basketball. The fact that this team... That, you know, it wasn't UCLA that won, although credit to them and Johnny Juzang is going to carry... Johnny Juzang really carried them to the final. I mean, seriously, they would, Michigan would have been in the final if not for Johnny Juzang. Uh, but, I mean, you, you kind of honestly could have made the vote for him for most outstanding play. Well, it's for the final four, excuse me. But, uh, of the tournament, you can argue Johnny Juzang was actually the most outstanding player. But think about it. UCLA did not win. Kentucky did not win. It was not Indiana, Duke, UNC, Kansas. It, it was not one of the uh, Florida to some extent. It was, or Villanova or UConn. It was not one of those major Michigan State to some extent. Uh, to some extent as well. It was not one of those major, uh, constantly competitive. Uh, national champions. It was a first-time national champion and a school that had not been to the national championship game since 1950. A school that had not been to the national championship game since the start of the Korean War. I know I keep bringing up wars, but I mean that's you know it's just a it's a marker. It's an incredible marker. And uh, the the fact the fact that they were able to turn it around like that was incredible. So uh, kudos to Baylor. And the fact that that's the first, well, I think Scott Drew messed it up in the press conference, but it was this in the, in the post-game interview, but it was the second uh, team from Texas, only the second team from Texas ever to win the men's basketball national championship, the other being Texas Western, which I believe became, U, yeah, I believe became UTEP, University of Texas El Paso, and I think Texas Western was the one that had, um, I think was the, fir- was the first one to have all African-American players on the team. I believe that's the team that was represented in that movie Glory Road. I haven't seen yet. It's supposed to be really good. But you think about Texas, and Texas is one of the biggest providers for school universities in general in the United States, but as well as great athletic programs. Think about it. University of Texas, Texas Tech, Texas A&M, UTEP, UTSA, Rice, Houston, Baylor, SMU, TCU, I think that's about, and even the minor ones, I mean, Abilene Christian made that run this year, Sam Houston State, Stephen F. Austin. There are so many good, um, Texas A&M Corpus Christi, you know, uh, there are so many good programs in the state of Texas uh, from an athletic level, and yet 
Baylor was only the second one ever to win, and I think Texas Western was, I want to say, like 1966. Uh, so it had been that long since a team from Texas, uh, one of the most heavily populated states in the Union, had won the national championship, which is incredibly impressive. And that, that's the thing, though. That's how much. You, that's how bad you got to feel, though, if you're Gonzaga, because Gonzaga had gotten here in 2017. They got to the national championship game in 2017 for the first time in program history. They'd been to the Final Four, I, I think, at least one time before. And Mark Few is one of the best head coaches in the country, one of the best head coaches of all time. He's he's getting to that point, but. This team and this program has been so disrespected because they are in the West Coast Conference. And I think I I may have mentioned this on the last podcast, but they are so disrespected because they're in the West Coast Conference and they're only, and besides Gonzaga, St. Mary's is probably the only really good program. And even then they're not at Gonzaga's level. But the funny thing is we never say that about UCLA being the best program of, of in the history of at least men's college. Yeah, probably men, actually, yeah, in the history of men's college basketball. But we never say, oh, but Stanford's never won a, a title in men's basketball. USC's never won. I, I think Cal maybe won one. Oregon's never won. Or, or Oregon won a long time ago. Oregon State's never won. Washington's never won. Washington State's never won. Uh, Arizona won once over 20 years ago. No, we never say that about uh, about UCLA. We never say that about uh, Kentucky's not in a, the SEC. I mean, aside from maybe Kentucky and Florida and Arkansas on occasion, uh, has never been a has usually not been a particularly strong uh, at basketball conference, men's basketball conference. We look at. Uh, Villanova, we say Vill- Villanova. We don't, you know, you don't look at Villanova or UConn. And say, oh, the rest of your conference, Syracuse won once, St. John's hasn't won in a long time, Seton Hall hasn't won in a long time, uh, Providence has never won, Creighton has, uh, or Providence won a long time ago, Georgetown won a long time. We never say any of those things. And it's not really fair because just because Gonzaga is not a Power Five, con- excuse me, the West Coast Conference is not a Power Five conference does not mean it's not a force to be reckoned with, and it doesn't mean Gonzaga is just playing by themselves. Gonzaga still went undefeated until the national championship game. And to go undefeated against it, I could be playing one-on-one with with a five-year-old. And if I went and if I won 30 consecutive games, I'd I'd be fairly impressed with myself. And, and Gonzaga's playing real legitimate talent. St. Mary's is a good program. St. Mary's has made tournament runs at times. And it's just not fair to Gonzaga that uh, they are so disrespected. But the way the some fans and some of the media has, has, has turned it, the only way for Gonzaga to truly earn the respect it deserves is to win the national championship game because they've done everything but that. They've done everything but that. They've come very close. They've come very, very close. And it's not fair to that program that they're going to end up like this, but the fact is... They were completely, totally, and utterly outplayed in that game against Baylor. In the in the game by Baylor, Baylor. And the funny thing is, when I remember when this tournament started, I I picked all four one seats to reach the final four. I figured Gonzaga was probably the team to beat. And then, despite 
what Illinois did to Michigan during the regular season, I probably would have said Gonzaga, Michigan, Illinois, and Baylor, one through four. And then Illinois got knocked out by Loyola Chicago, which was not terrible. Loyola Chicago is what, finished with a higher seed than it did when they went to the Final Four and got all the way, I think, to the Sweet 16, made a good run. So it wasn't as major an upset as maybe some would have expected, but Illinois got knocked out. And then you're thinking, okay, well, at this point I was thinking, okay, Gonzaga and Michigan, the winner of that game, it's probably going to be those two in the Final Four, and the winner of that game will probably walk all over probably Baylor in the national title game. So, you know, let's appreciate the Final Four. Let's appreciate that semifinal game. Now, the truth is we would go on to appreciate that semifinal game a lot in that in that side of the bracket, much more than we would the national championship game, just based on pure, pure excitement. But it was not Michigan. UCLA on the back, I, I cannot emphasize enough, on the back of Johnny Juzang, who carried that program, uh, uh, got to the Final Four and stunned Michigan. And then you're thinking... Okay, well, it's probably going to be Gonzaga and Baylor, and Gonzaga's probably going to win fairly fairly handily. Hope, hopefully it's not too much just so we can watch a good game. That's all we, that's all we really want. And then UCLA, uh, th- this time it was more of a team effort, even though Johnny Juzang was still outstanding. UCLA pushed Gonzaga to the brink multiple times. I mean, if not for a great play by Daniel Timmy drawing that offensive foul on, on Juzang in the last three, se- three I think it was 3.3 seconds left in regulation, if not for that play, UCLA is going to the national, probably going to the national championship game. And that's, the, that, that's something that really killed them. That is, I think Jim Nance brought it up, and it's true, Gonzaga was so worn out by UCLA, and that's part of what killed them on Monday night. Especially, especially with the way the game started for Baylor. It was it, it was over from the beginning. It was 9-0 Baylor to start. Now, I'll admit, I turned it on a little... I turned it on, I think, when it was 9-0 because I was watching another game. Um, but the... I mean, really... And Baylor could not miss. Baylor could not miss a shot. So I think this the reasoning for Gonzaga losing this game, because I won't say nine times out of ten they'll, they'll win that game, but maybe six. Maybe six out of every ten games between those two teams, Gonzaga will win. I think it was just that one-two combo of... UCLA wearing down Gonzaga and forcing overtime, not only put, pushing under the brink in regulation, forcing overtime, but pushing them to, to the brink in overtime and only losing by three points. And the fact that it was a 93-90 to 90 game, one of the better college basketball games I've ever seen, but they pushed them to the brink. And that, that, that was the slugfest that was, I think Gonzaga was probably waiting to have in the national championship game. And I don't, I don't know if they they may have underestimated an 11 seed in UCLA. Maybe they thought, oh, you know, Michigan's not here. Or, you know, Michigan's not here. Or, you know, it's the 11 seed. We, we can knock them off fairly easily. I, it's possible Gonzaga underestimated 
UCLA, and that, that could have been what killed them. But it's just that one-two knockout punch of UCLA pushing Gonzaga to the brink of elimination and Baylor hitting everything in sight for the majority of this game. Uh, it, wow. I mean, I, I, kudos to Gonzaga. That's how... That's the kind of championship pedigree that that program has and that Mark Few has because I kept saying if they cut it to 10 by halftime, we've still got a game for sure. And kudos to them, even though they were down by probably about 17 or 18 and a couple of points in that first half, they cut it to 10 by the half. It's big, but they just never recovered. They never fully recovered. I don't think they got it back to within... 10 or at at most 9 again. And then Baylor started to pour it on in the at the end and it's a 16 point final. Mitchell could not miss nobody on that team could miss a shot from the outside. It was just a weird, weird and Suggs wasn't really played as as much as I thought he would have been uh, but it, it's no and if you're a Gonzaga fan, you have to say you have to appreciate this year as much as any, except perhaps 2017. Uh, but it, it, I, even for as incredible and emotional and surprising as that Suggs half, almost half-court heave was to win the game and go to the national championship game, it, it's it's... It's an even more so emotional punch to lose that game and lose that game in such a fashion to Baylor for it not to even be close for most of that game. Think about that though. Think about the emotional roller coaster, the um, the the very sharp emotional roller coaster that is to go to go uh, 30 and 0 maybe I don't know how many games exactly Gonzaga play this year but to win 25 30 games in a row to be undefeated for your entire season and then the first game you lose all year not only does it cost you the national championship but the first game you lose all year the national championship game you never led Th- think of how high you can be riding for three, four, four and a half months and just the sharpest dip that you can ever experience as an athlete for uh, on the court or yeah in this case on the court think about that I, if you're marked few you got to be able to do it. and you have whoever which whoever guys you have returning, I feel like if it's possible, it'd be a great emotional tool to get somebody in touch, get in touch with members of the, uh, for example, the 2007 Patriots, um, for, uh, I mean, some other teams that, uh, Larry, the 79 Indiana State team, there are some guys left, I believe, from, it was also mentioned that the 1961 Ohio State team, I think it was 1961 Ohio State team that fell to Cincinnati after going undefeated the rest of the year. Uh, that is such a tool. That's uh, That would be such an emotional tool uh, for guys who would be returning to this team next year. I mean, because you have to address that sort of thing head on. The fact that we won every game except the one that mattered the most. 
Because you know they trade in a heartbeat. You would trade out. Uh, you would trade out a loss in a regular season for a loss in the national championship game. Well, that does it for the men's portion. Let's get over to the women's side. I, I will be honest. I've I've only really paid attention to women's basketball more so with Seton Hall in college basketball, which is not which is look they there is some good basketball in women's basketball. There, I mean, they're, and they're well, it's a strange way to put it. There is some competitive basketball being played by female college athletes. UConn is probably, if you really think about it, UConn is actually the strongest program ever in the history of college basketball and perhaps in the history of college athletics because, think about it, UCLA's won 11 titles, but they won 10 with one coach, mostly in the 60s and 70s, and they won one in the 90s. It's been around for many decades. Uh, The women's national champion, the women's NCAA basketball tournament was founded in 1982. So UConn has won 11 titles in a 39-year span. And even then, I'm trying to remember the last time they actually won. It's probably less than that. So, I, I mean, I, but I, I got to say, I watched mostly the Final Four, but I watched some of a very entertaining Final Four for women's basketball First off, the fact that Arizona knocked off UConn. I mean, look look at Arizona's past. I'm telling you, look up the past of the Arizona women's basketball program because this was the first year, not only was this the first year that they made the national championship game, it was the first year they made the Final Four, it was the first year they made the Elite Eight, and I think it was only the second time they made the Sweet 16. And, and, on top of that, this program, which came within one shot, came within one point, one shot of winning the national championship, had not made it to the NCAA tournament in 16 years. Arizona had not made the tournament since 2005. So, I mean, you cannot give enough credit to Adia Barnes and uh, to Ari McDonald, who is going to be a star in the WNBA. Um, I, I know she she's a little small. Well, I mean, she looked smaller in comparison when you consider how tall, Stan, uh, how big Stanford was. But it, Arizona, with a huge upset of UConn, who of course will be back next year, and Paige Bucker, uh, Paige Beckers again played her butt off. I was actually fortunate enough when I worked at SMY last year uh, for my internship that I actually got to mark some clips, uh, mark and transcribe some clips of Paige Beckers from her high school days in Minnesota, uh, in Minnesota, because UConn had just recruited her and, and she had just committed. And SMY was the, or is the official uh, television network of, of UConn women's basketball and men's basketball, I believe that for that matter. Uh, so it was really thrilling to get to, to see her really secondhand, but, but to get an early look, but to get an early look at her ability. And she did a phenomenal job. Now, Arizona with an upset of UConn, Stanford knocking off South Carolina, and Stanford stunning Arizona, even though Stanford probably 
was in control of most of that game. Stanford stunning Arizona by the score of only 54-53. to A one-point game. Ari McDonald was double-teamed and missed a shot off the back rim at the buzzer. A tough one to watch if you're an Arizona fan. Here's the thing, though. I noticed, and I'm not going to dwell on this because Arizona had an outstanding year, by far the greatest in the history of the program and one of the greatest in the history of the school's athletic calendar. But I, McDonald was double teamed off the inbound, and I can't remember who inbounded it, but uh, whoever inbounded was taking a long time. Arizona had a timeout left. I was really surprised that neither Barnes nor the in, neither Adia Barnes nor the inbounder, whoever that was, I, I, I forget who at the moment, did not call timeout. It would have been because if you have that in your back pocket, I feel like you have to use every resource possible. You have to take that timeout, and perhaps Arizona could have drawn could have drawn up a a better play or found a, a way to get. Ari McDonald open because obviously she's the one who you want to take that last shot, but she didn't get a great look. The fact that she even got that shot off and got relatively close to putting it in is impressive nonetheless, but imagine if Arizona had taken a timeout there. Once again, though, that being said, Stanford, Tara Vanderveer comes away with her third title, their first in 29 years. Arizona is proving that you know even the bottom of the Pac-12 is starting to rise. And I am really even more thrilled to to finally really get into women's basketball, uh, to women's college basketball a little more next year. So we are going to take a break. We have a number of things to discuss besides just college basketball. Talk a little bit about Drew Holiday's deal. We'll talk about the Jets trading Sam Darnold. Giovanni Bernard was released. We will. I will address this whole thing with Deshaun Watson, uh, as well as get, getting into baseball. We'll talk about Francisco Lindor's huge deal, Nick Castellanos' suspension, the Mets and Phillies having bullpen problems, and moving on to the NHL. We'll talk a little bit about the Montreal Canadiens and some of their injury issues. All here on Sports in the Waiting Room when we return. Welcome back to Sports in the Waiting Room. Just one thing I want to discuss for the NBA news this week, and that is Drew Holiday getting signed by the Bucks to a four-year, $135 million extension with up to $25 million in bonuses. Now, I have argued many a time that players get paid too much. And and that it's and now th- this part is um, this next part is factual and that I would or I, th- I would think it's well it's going to sound stupid if I say I think it's factual this is something that I would think is a fact that it happens not so much because of what the uh, because of the players' uh, jobs as it is how much money sports actually brings in. So I think I mentioned that on the last, um, I think I actually mentioned that on the last podcast. Anyhow, I'm just not a huge fan of big contracts, uh, especially considering, especially if it's a player who doesn't really live up to his contract. 
and you know it's just a, just a waste of time and money perhaps for the organization. That being said, I did some research on Drew Holiday, and there are just so many reasons to like the guy both on and off the court that I am actually very happy that he got this deal. Um, first off, the fact that let's start with on the court stuff. So, um, first off, the fact that he he's actually not that high scorer for his career. He, he averages 15.9 a game for his career, or at least entering this season, he averaged 15.9 a game for his career. Uh, so, which would probably make you think that I wouldn't want him to be as highly paid because he doesn't score as much. That being said, obviously he compensates for it with astonishing defense and great ball handling skills because he averaged because he averaged he's averaged as high as eight assists a game in a season. And most of the time, he averages about six or seven. So, I, I mean, j- just a, a good job by him as an offensive guard in the first place, as a point and shooting guard. But he is really a traditional point guard in the sense that he doesn't score as much as he actually does pass. Whereas, you know, nowadays you'll see point guards who will take nonstop threes and sometimes, you know, will be a little a little too aggressive in terms of their ball handling, you know, commit a lot of turnovers, but uh, the holiday is a great traditional point guard. And he, I mean, he's been able to score before he scored as high as about 21 a game in a season over his career. The fact that he is a veteran, he's played 11, he's in his 12th season. The fact that he's averaged, about a steal and a half a game for his career and averaged nearly nearly a block a game over each of the previous three seasons before this year. So the fact that he's one of the more stellar defenders in in the NBA, he also has, um, he's averaged as, as many as two steals a game in, in a single postseason and as high as almost 24 points a game in the playoffs. So even though he... You know, I mean, he's with the Sixers and the Pelicans, who have not done a lot in the postseason in recent years. But and look, he's not going to He's not Giannis. Obviously, Giannis is going to get paid way more, or is getting paid way more. He's not Chris Middleton, but he is such a difference maker in the locker room because he's in his twelfth season and he's still playing at such a high level. A great player at both ends of the floor. Great facilitator. And he he's worthy he's worthy of the money. I'll, I'll give him that. But I also found some stuff about him personally that was really incredible. Uh, one, there's just a sweet story. The way I figured this out, I did not know about this. That apparently he's married to the former Lauren Chaney, who is who was a, a midfielder and won, I believe it. I think it was two. Uh, Two gold medals? Is it two? Yeah, two gold medals at the Olympic Games as a midfielder for the U.S. women's national soccer team, and one and helped to win the gold medal in 2015 in Canada at the World Cup. Um, but apparently they met at UCLA. They went to UCLA together. He only went for a year, and he. Uh, apparently, he only went for a year. He was drafted after his freshman year by the Sixers. Apparently, that year, he was going to a women's, a women's basketball game. 
and he was going to his seat, and a girl asked, a little girl asked if he, for his autograph, and asked if he was Darren Collison. <laughs> um, and he apparently told her, "No, I'm sorry, I'm not Darren, Darren Collison." He goes to take, he goes to sit down, and Lauren, now Holiday, then Shaney, was sitting behind him and said, "Don't worry, you're cuter than Darren is," which I feel like is, and now it turns out they were both dating different people at the time, but they were they became friends. And then later on, I guess things didn't work out, and they started dating. Probably maybe about a year later, I guess, after he got after he started playing with the Sixers, which is I, I don't know. Which I mean, the fact that they were dating other people makes it a little uh, sketchy, but it's but it's also so cute at the same time. Uh, I don't know. That's, that's just you know one of those things that gets to me. That uh, gets to me. I'm I'm not one of those people who watches Hallmark, who watches those cheesy Hallmark movies. But I mean, it, you know, it's one of those moments where it's like, oh, and uh, and it, I I mean, he I did not realize also about five years ago he took an indefinite leave from the Pelicans to take care to help take care of his wife uh, after she was diagnosed with a brain tumor. Uh, by the way, she was pregnant, very pregnant while she had this and uh, had brain surgery weeks after giving up to their uh, giving birth to their first child. Um, and oh, and, and the other thing was, I always thought it was kind of strange, I'm not judging him, but I always thought it was a little strange that his name was J.R.U.E. Um, as opposed to, you know, D.R.E.W. But I like he said he uh his cousins' names are Jessica, Jenna, Jade, Jalen, and James. His older brother is just, and his older brother is Justin. And his mom liked the name Drew, but she wanted to keep she wanted to keep the J somehow. And apparently, what's funny enough is apparently they did not keep the J names after that. He has siblings named Lauren and Aaron who are younger than him. But I don't know. I just like that. But you know, it it also just shows you that. Um, I mean, some some people, you know, some people take advantage of their, you know, take, they misuse their, their money, misuse their power. Some people aren't, you know, some people, you know, they don't put their fullest effort on the field or on the court. I feel like we've seen that with some people who have made a lot of money and some people aren't, you know, we, we don't act, you know, if you're an athlete, you don't have to be an, an activist or anything like that, but I, I, you know, you don't have to be, you don't have to be politically outspoken. You have every right to, to do so or not to do so. But I feel like if you're getting paid enough, you're just, we're just asking you to try to be charitable in the community. Just, just make the most of your money and, um, try to give it to those less fortunate. So I, I I figure that's just something I, I figured I'd bring up because you realize that athletes are not they're not just guys who are making money or women that are making money they are legit they're human beings uh, and I, I thought I thought that would just be something nice to bring up so I mean good for him if you're if you're gonna use the if you're gonna if you're gonna be if your effort will be worth the money and you really make the most of your status for for others then good for you if you're able to to make that much money so i just thought that was a sweet story i figured i'd move, move and uh, and a nice take i figured i'd move on so uh so i'm excuse me moving on now so some of the bigger news in the new york metropolitan area this week jets trade sam darnold to the carolina panthers for a sixth round pick this year 
as well as a second-round pick and a fourth-round pick next year, 2022. So Sam Darnold gets better weapons. He'll have Christian McCaffrey, one of the best running backs in the NFL, and probably the best all and Well, maybe besides Alvin Kamara, the best all-around back in the NFL in terms of rece- receiving and rushing. And he also gets he reunites with Robbie Anderson. He gets a, a better core. I don't know if he gets a deeper receiving core, but he'll get a better uh, group of weapons and a better group of skill players around him. But the thing is with that, uh, the the thing with that is Teddy Bridgewater is still in a Carolina Panthers uniform, and that's a team that won. Not to be fair, they only won five games, but there were a lot of games that they came very close to winning last year in part due to Teddy Bridgewater, I would argue. Now, they I mean, remember, there was the game in Kansas City. They only lost by two. And it wasn't exactly a defensive game, but it also wasn't exactly a shootout either. So, I, I mean, Sam Darnold, yeah, he got traded. But if he really doesn't perform at the highest level, he might not even get the starting job this year. I still think Teddy Bridgewater is a legitimate starting quarterback in the NFL. He's a good game manager, and he deserves a lot of credit for what he's done for what he's done over his career. Because I said this about Alex Smith, I appreciate a great game manager, and I've said before, you know, there's no game. Ma- Tom Brady, really, except for 2007, was really just a great game. Has really just been a, and a, the best game manager his entire career. It's not a it's not a criticism. It is a compliment, and you know that, that's what that's what it is with a lot of the best quarterbacks who aren't really gunslingers. But I said this about Alex Smith that if he had not gotten hurt, he may be a Hall of Fame quarterback because the Niners were very close to winning the Super Bowl. The Chiefs were fairly close to winning the Super Bowl. I mean, he did some good work with Washington. I don't know where he's going next, but. Uh, Teddy Bridgewater, everybody forgets, Teddy Bridgewater had a stellar first year in Minnesota. And then Blair Walsh missed that kick against the Seahawks. And uh, to be fair, it's not to say, it's not like Bridgewater played that well in that game. That was a very defensive game, but it was also freezing, and that was a chip shot. So we very well could have seen, and I think the Seahawks were the two-time defending, probably should have been two-time Super Bowl, two-time defending Super Bowl champions, but they were the two-time defending NFC champions. And the Vikings came very close to knocking them off. Uh, so a- anyway, and then Bridgewater got hurt in the was it the first year of the new stadium, I believe. Then Sam Bradford came in. He got hurt. Case Keenum came in, and there was the miracle in Minnesota. Took them all the way to the NFC Championship game. And then they go out and sign Kirk Cousins. Bridgewater goes to the Jets. The Jets make that ill-advised trade to the Saints, Bridgewater ends up going free agent to Carolina. Now, let's remember, the Vikings, even though it was obviously a miracle that they got to the NFC Championship game, that play with Stephon Diggs, if Teddy Bridgewater is in a Vikings uniform then, and he continues to be there, they could have a Super Bowl right now. They could have had a Super Bowl right now under Teddy Bridgewater. Perhaps multiple. So Teddy Bridgewater is still an adequate and still, I think, a very good starting quarterback in the NFL. So it's not there is no there is no guarantee that Sam Darnold will win the starting job, even though I would say it's likely. There is no guarantee. Now, as for the trade itself, 
I thought it was a fairly good deal on both sides. I also think that the Jets could have I think that the Jets could have held on to Sam Darnold because a lot of people forget the year that you know Sam Darnold won, I think the Jets won 6 games with Darnold, but even though Darnold was out for the first 4 games and Adam Gase who is apparently according to some a joke as of a head coach was their head coach. So, I mean, I'm at, I mean, theoretically, they could have been in the playoffs that year if Darnold was there the entire season. Not to mention, the Jets went out and signed all of these receivers and are probably the deepest, probably have the, the deepest roster of skill position players that they have had uh, perhaps since, if not since Ryan Fitzpatrick was the quarterback, then since perhaps Mark Sanchez was the quarterback. So, the Jets did some great things. I figured, you know, maybe, and I know the rumors now, and especially now, are probably that they're going to go get Zach Wilson, maybe Justin Fields, but the rumors are going towards Zach Wilson. But the Jets very well could have held on to Sam Darnold and could have drafted probably, uh, I would say, Panay Sewell, the tackle out of Oregon, and put him opposite Mekhi Becton to give a lot of protection to... Darnold, at least on the outside. Now, so look, I think Sam Darnold still has, uh, still can, still has a very bright future, especially in Carolina. Probably has a, a slightly better future in Carolina than he does with the Jets. I, I would say he has better ownership. I would say he look. I don't. I, I don't know if I could tell you definitively actually that he has better coaching because Matt Rule just took over, just took over in Carolina, and Robert Sala did a lot of great things as the D.C. in San Francisco. But I, I would definitely say he's in a better position in Charlotte than he was in East Rutherford. Also helps a little bit that he's from, that, you know, it's a little, for if you don't realize, Charlotte is actually the western part of North Carolina. It's actually, it's actually a little, for, fairly further west. Uh, if you go directly north, I would probably say it's probably like Cleveland or Pittsburgh, probably somewhere in between there. So, it also helps that Sam Darnold is from California. He's a little closer to home. It's something that calms the nerves a little bit. And, you know, I would say Darnold is in a better situation there. That being said, the Jets. So, look, Carolina made a good deal. Carolina made a good deal. They gave up a fair amount, but they did not give up a first-round pick. And they, they get a, a guy who could be their franchise quarterback if he competes well enough. And even if not... He's going to motivate. He's going to motivate Teddy Bridgewater. Meanwhile, the Jets. I think. Look, if I were them, I think I may have held on to Darnold because the Jets are not the number. Don't have the number one pick, and you know it's not like uh, it's highly unlikely that uh, every, everybody says that Trevor Lawrence is the best quarterback in this draft, and then kind of a toss-up between Fields and Wilson, and then I know Trey Lance is there as well. They'll probably go a little lower. But the fact that the Jets are not the number one, don't have the number one pick, they're not going to trade up to the number one pick. Uh, and, you know, they're they're not going to pick the best quarterback, and odds are, at least at this point in time, they will not pick the best quarterback. I would have held on to Darnold, drafted Sewell, and seeing what he could have done with one totally healthy season with a competent head coach and good skill position players. 
That being said, they decided not to take that chance. And I, I think someone mentioned this to me, that Joe Douglas, that this wasn't the guy, you know, Darnold was not picked by Joe Douglas or Robert Sala. And apparently, the, the rumor is that Matt Rule, when interviewing for the head, co- head coaching position, which at the time went to uh, Adam Gase, apparently stopped by Sam Darnold. This must have been before, his, like between the draft and the start of his rookie year, that Darnold apparently said, can you get somebody in here to change the culture? So this was before Joe Douglas, because I will say that I think Joe Douglas has done a great job of changing the culture, even though the on-field results have not been outstanding yet. And he brought in Robert Sala, who's a guy who is going to do a great job with, with changing, changing the culture of the Jets organization that has been frequently, and I'd say fairly, criticized over the Johnson ownership period. And, uh, but, I, I, I think that if that's true, that says two things. One, it says how bad the ownership really was. And two, it says how intelligent and mature Sam Darnold was even at his time, even at his age. But obviously, the Johnsons have done a good job by by bringing in Joe Douglas and bringing in someone who is going to be, you know, intelligent enough to make all the the day-to-day football operations, make those decisions, got somebody who will be the great uh, sideline general for the Jets. So it's a good deal. Jets get a sixth rounder this year, a second and a fourth next year. I think it's a very good deal. I think it's a good deal for all sides. Now, moving on a little further west, Giovanni Bernard Bernard was released by the Cincinnati Bengals. He's played eight seasons. It really is, I mean, especially with Joe, especially with Joe Mixon. Obviously, he's a backup running back now. He had about he's averaged about 500 yards a season. Now, to be fair, I think he's missed some games, but that's what he has averaged. One thing I like to bring up, I usually bring up the importance of... I, I like to think that that material things do not rule everything, that, that money does not rule everything, and that more important to a lot of players than just the money, or, or even being able to win, is to be able to go home. And Giovanni Bernard... I will point out, was born in West Palm Beach, went to high school in Fort Lauderdale, and the Miami Dolphins, especially because I think you can argue Bernard is a backup running back now. He's a second-string running back. The Dolphins, who have gotten a lot better, could very well use a backup for Miles Gaskin, or maybe even someone who can compete for that starting job. And obviously, that's that's an organization that... Look, some people have said that Tua Tagovailoa was a little shaky this past year. Uh, I'd, I'd say a little shaky is fair, but I, it's, you know, I think he still has a bright future. But they have, I believe they have some money to spend, and I doubt Giovanni Bernard's contract would cost that much. So, so we'll, we'll see what happens there, but I think that would be a good, look, eight years Eight years is a long time to play in the NFL as a running back in particular, but he is under 30. He's still got time in him, I think. Moving on with with one more thing here in the NFL, and it's a very, it's a serious and a a touchy, well, touchy is probably not the word, a very serious and a very um, 
controversial topic. Not a divisive topic, but a controversial topic. And that is that Deshaun Watson has had his endorsement suspended by Nike. Watson has now been accused by 22 women in civil lawsuits of sexual mis- of sexual assault and misconduct. If you have, I mean, I encourage you, you know, if you if you can handle these sort of things to to read some of these articles and and uh, and um, some of these public details that these women have released about Watson and what he did to them, um, or what he allegedly did to them at least. Um, now look, some people have alleged, and they've alleged this for not just Watson, but for you know a number of people who have made accusations. They've alleged that they that the allegations are made for publicity. Now, on occasion, that ha- that has been proven true. However, I, I mean, when you get accused by twenty-two women. And uh, when you get accused by 22 women, the odds are at at the very least one of them, at the very least one of them has to be a legitimate accusation because, look, I believe in, in the goodness of people, and obviously Deshaun, Deshaun Watson definitely did something bad, but, you know, th- not that many people are going to are, are going to, or not that high a percentage of people would really do, or would really accuse someone of something bad simply for attention or perhaps money. Uh, I, so it, I, I believe that people are inherent, that most people are inherently good. So, but I, I mean, the, the, uh, Watson also from a, from a football standpoint, everybody says he, you know, I've heard that, you know, demeans his trade value, which, I mean, is obvious, but uh, the, the, the question is, at this point, will he even play again? Because we've seen this in entertainment, and fortunately, people who have committed such serious offenses, some people who have committed such serious offenses have not returned. The question now is... Uh, This is the first time that I... I'm not going to say this is the first time that something like this has happened in sports, but I will say this is the first time that something like this has happened in sports to the degree that it has and to the the amount of publicity that it has created. And I... Truthfully, if any of this is legitimate, then Deshaun Watson should probably not be able to step on the football field again. Now look, I don't know if this would be considered a quote-unquote hot take, especially in the way that sexual violence has been addressed in today's world, much more so than it has in the past, but it's something that needs, it's something that needs to be said. I haven't, I haven't talked about Watson at all on the pod, well, in this sense on the podcast since all this news came out, but it's just something that has to be brought out, brought up because, you know, once one or two women said said that this had happened you wondered if it was poss- possibly true or if it was something that would be settled in court or swept under the rug but the fact that that many have come, that many women have come out and said it i i would be stunned and and probably and disappointed if if Watson stepped on a football field again
So, um, you know, I, but that, that's it for that. Um, just to move on here to a lighter subject, obviously. Move pretty much anything else. The lighter subject. Moving on to baseball. Francisco Lindor signs with the Mets. Ten years, three hundred and forty-one million dollars. Pretty much ensuring that he'll spend the rest of his career with the Mets, unless we see a Bobby Bonilla situation. But I mean, you know, we saw this with. I mean, we we've seen this a little bit with. Steve Cohen, but I think this is probably the biggest signing so far and the biggest example of his capability to spend, uh, not just his ability to spend, but his willingness to spend, and, and not just spend money on, you know, we're not going to pay Bobby Bonilla $1 million until he's 60, $1 million a year until he's 60. We are going to spend money on one of the higher, some of the highest quality players in Major League Baseball to ensure that they play for the New York Metropolitans. Now, I, I, look, 10 years and $341 million, yes, again, that's a lot of money. It's madness. And, I mean, I think, I believe Lindor is getting paid more than. I could be wrong. I want to say Lindor is getting paid more than Mike Trout per year, which I don't know. I, I don't know if I, I didn't think I'd ever see a shortstop getting paid $34.1 million a year. And this is, believe it or not, he actually asked for, I think, 11 and 385, which is madness. But the Mets have made, the Mets have found their franchise shortstop and they've sealed them up. I, I know that Lindor was perhaps a little laissez-faire at his opening press conference with the Mets and didn't really say whether he'd sign that he'd be open. He pretty much said he'd be open to signing. So I was wondering if the Mets would ultimately seal this deal. But the fact that they did and that they did it relatively relatively quickly, I mean, just before, and that, that they did it before the season started, should give Mets fans a ton of hope. And now, hope is something that is probably very disappointing if you're a Mets fan. Uh, well, n but, I mean, that's, that's you know, what every sports fan truly needs is hope. And for the first time in a while, the Mets have, probably for the first time since, I mean, Ahmed Rosario was a good shortstop, but probably for the first time since Jose Reyes' first stint with the Mets, the Mets have a franchise shortstop. They have a franchise player, a five-tool player, at the most important position in the infield. So we'll take a break, and then we'll wrap up the show, talk about Nick Castellanos' suspension, the Mets and Phillies with their bullpen problems, one of the few things where the Mets still have problems, and, of course, talk about the Montreal Canadiens injury situation, all here on Sports in the Waiting Room. All right, just a couple more things to discuss here on the program. First off, Nick Castellanos suspended two games after his actions that sparked what was fortunately what fortunately cannot be considered a brawl because there were no punches thrown, uh, maybe some pushing and shoving, if anything. But uh, for his actions that started a benches clearing, let's say scuffle between the Reds and the Cardinals opening weekend. Uh, Castellanos 
I, I, look, I did not see the home run or the celebration from the home run that started it all. Uh, now, look, I look, look. There is a, a some. It's sort of a gray area, but I think there's sort of a level of celebration that's acceptable after a home run. The Jose Bautista against Texas in the playoffs level is probably a ten. That's the, probably the least acceptable. Or well, maybe the Carlos Gomez one against the Braves is a pretty tough one too. That one that one's pretty high on the list. But um, apparently Castellanos was a little over the top. I did not see the home run celebration itself. So anyway, Woodford, pitcher for the Cardinals, hit Castellanos later in the game. Now to be fair, he didn't hit him high. I think he hit him in the hip. But Castellanos, I think, took some exception. Did not go out to the mound. I think he had some words with the Yadier Molina. There was some booing from the fans, and he went down to first base. Castellanos later comes around to score on a wild pitch. Woodford is covering the plate, and Castellanos, if you did not see it, he is he's celebrating when he scores on the wild pitch, and it's one thing if he's celebrating and he's going to the dugout, and he, but he, sti- he looks, he's a couple of feet away, from, like he's right in Woodford's face. He looks him in the eyes. And I look, I understand if you've been hit, but that is not the action of a veteran player. Meanwhile, Yadier Molina, who is as respected as anybody in this league, and so refe- so respected, in fact, that Castellanos later said, and I'm paraphrasing here, after the game, that he could have punched me in the face, and I still loved, I still respect that guy so much that I wouldn't have cared. Uh but that's how beloved Yadier Molina is and how tough he is and how much of a great leader he is that he goes and confronts Castellanos. For no pun- and, and, and he's mature enough that he does not throw a punch. I think he might have been separated before that. They might have been separated before that. But he does not throw a pr- punch. He just gets into his face. And fortunately, the Cardinals, I don't believe, retaliated any, retaliated any further. I mean, we'll see what happens later this year. It's also because Castellanos, I believe, was tossed from the game. And obviously a two-game suspension, so they're not going to see him that soon. But, I mean, if, if there's any retaliation, it'll be a little later on in the year. But just an unfortunate... And, and you know, it, it, brings into, it brings in a larger discussion. People have talked about how the MLB needs to be younger and more passionate. And to an extent, I agree. I, I agree but to an extent or a degree, I agree. It's, and, you know, there's there's room for goofing around and being a kid. It's a kid's game. It's it, Baseball brings out the kid in all of us. But, I mean, even when you're a kid, you know, you learn to be respectful of others. It's one thing if you celebrate, but don't celebrate to an extent where you really look like you have malice toward another team or, or another player. Now look, it now look, if it's a retaliatory thing and you are reactive in nature, then you have every right to do that. Then you have you know like for example, what Texas like you know, I mean Texas, you know, was you know, if you're somebody on the Rangers and you and you do a bat flip after I mean, against Jose Bautista, and you just, I don't know, you look at it, and you're playing the Blue Jays. Let's just say hypothetically, you know, 2015, this happened. But, you know, if if you're not the one who started it, then, yeah, you have every right to, to celebrate 
and, and get your revenge. But, you know, there's a difference between being a kid and just being childish. That's, that's the way to put it. To, to having the fun-loving, carefree ability of, of being a kid and, and being childish and immature. There is a difference. Moving on, wrapping up the MLB discussion here. Uh, the Mets and the Phillies have some bullpen problems. We talked about um, we we've talked about the Mets bullpen problems before. Phillies had huge bullpen problems last year. The Mets um, Diaz got better, and they've done something. They got went out and got Trevor May, but but obviously that didn't work out for them the other night when the Mets played the Phillies. Jacob Degrom again was outstanding, and again the Mets lost after he was phenomenal. He had six shutout innings, and then the Mets gave up five in the eighth after being up two to nothing. Trevor May, and I, I'm trying to remember. It definitely wasn't Edwin Diaz. I can't remember who the other person was, but it was Trevor May. I'm not sure, but anyway, the Mets give up five runs in the eighth inning. I think only three of them earned, and that ultimately cost them the game. And then the Phillies almost paid them back in the ninth inning because the Mets were able to come all the way back and they cut it to 5-3. I had, had the tying run at first base. And Pete Alonso came within about five feet of hitting a game tie of what would have been a go-ahead home run in the ninth inning to put the Mets up 6-5. So obviously, even though the Mets and the Phillies, I mean, I'd argue the Braves are probably the best team in that division based on, you know, just historically speaking and, and what they've done in the last few years in particular. But the Mets and the Phillies, even though they're two of the most dangerous teams in, I would argue, the most dangerous division, the National League East, this year... Still stunned that I would say that, but uh, you know their biggest issue is still their bullpens. So they they still have issues, and it's something we will have to definitely watch as we get into at, at, in the first half of this season as we move toward the trade deadline, July uh, in July. So wrapping up the program here, Montreal Canadiens with some tough injury news. Carey Price on a lesser note, he's day to day with a lower body, lower body injury. Bigger news, however, Brendan Gallagher out indefinitely with a broken thumb. He's been their leading goal scorer this year. He has been their consistent veteran leader, great presence. He has been, not he's not as talented, but he's and he's not as much of a pest, but he is akin to Brad Marchand, I would argue. And considering the Bruins have a better roster, I would argue a lot more important to the Montreal organization than Brad Marchand is to the Bruins organization. So out indefinitely with a broken thumb, and we only have about 15, 20 games left in the regular season, so it's going to be very difficult to figure out when Gallagher will be coming back, if he's coming back. Now, Montreal is a significant cushion. As I'm recording this, they're eight points ahead of Vancouver for fourth in the quote-unquote Scotia division, really the Canada division. So they have a little bit of a cushion. And I, I've been almost surprised that they've actually been able to compete that well. They've done a, such a good job of staying competitive considering what Vancouver did in the playoffs last year. You have Edmonton, Winnipeg, Toronto, and how hot they've all been. And Cal not to mention you still have Calgary. Calgary's been a, been a, uh, a bad, uh, an unpleasant surprise uh, this year for, our, for where you expected them to be. But Montreal has drafted rather well. 
They've added some big, and they've added some big names. Like, I mean, guys who are past their prime, but still big names. And Corey Perry and Eric Stahl, who are great veteran depth additions. But these two players, Gallagher and Price in particular, I would argue, are probably the most crucial to the Habs' success right now, and really so in the last few years, probably since P.K. Subban was uh, was traded and Max Pacioretty was, and probably since Subban and Pacioretty were traded, these guys have been the two most important players on this team by far. So we'll see what happens. Wrapping up, just one last thing I want to mention before we leave this show. I am very fortunate that I, like right after this, I'm going to be leaving to go get my first dose of my vaccine, and um, it's, uh, I'm getting, I figure I can say, it's the Moderna vaccines, the two shot, most of my, uh, everybody, everyone else in my household has already gotten the first shot, we're both getting, we're all getting two shots, and I, I am so grateful that we have gotten, and we have pushed so far in this, that we have a vaccine, that it's out, that it's been out to the people who have needed it the most, um, that, that it's, that, you know, that I am getting it, um, that I can follow finally, cause I've, you know, I've, I've said, I'm going to wait because really I am, I'm a little bit overweight and I could have probably gotten, um, I've, I've lost some weight, but I'm technically, I'm barely obese. I could, I could actually, I actually, and was more so, uh, when vaccines really started rolling out, I actually could have gotten this. I probably could have gotten this weeks ago, but I said, you know, I'm going to swallow my pride. I'm going to, people need this more than I do. I do not go out that often. And I'm incredibly careful. Uh, so I, I made sure that other people got it, but, um, we are not out of the woods yet. If you see what's going on, all these people, my age, and I apologize to people outside my age range on behalf of people in my age range for things that they are doing in Florida in particular and these people that are going on spring break and gathering. And, I mean, Texas, did you see what they're doing at uh, Texas Ranger Games? It's, it's like a full park with people without masks. There's no mask mandate. So, please, please, there's a fourth wave. And God knows we have waited so long. We've been so patient. You can be more patient. You can be, you can be safe. Granted, there are also... You can go out to some extent if you start getting if you start to get the vaccine, but listen to the CDC, listen to your doctor, listen to health advisors, and just listen to wisdom. Be wise, be smart, and be conscientious in particular of others. Not if you're not going to do this for yourself, do this for other people, and just please be safe because don't be a moron. As I quote uh, Murray Goldberg, um, I hope somebody gets that reference. So just be smart, be safe, be good, and I promise you that someday in the very near future, we will be all back together and back to normal again. All right. Thank you so much, and thanks for listening. I'll see you next week.